CD2 In fact, the hat had no intention of letting anything happen to it, and was currently hurrying towards the mended drum under the arm of a rather puzzled black-clad thief. The thief, as will become apparent, was a special type of thief. The thief was an artist of theft. Other thieves merely stole everything that was not nailed down, but this thief stole the nails as well. This thief had scandalised Ankh by taking a particular interest in stealing, with astonishing success, things that were in fact not only nailed down, but also guarded by keen-eyed guards in inaccessible strongrooms. There are artists that will paint an entire chapel ceiling. This was the kind of thief that could steal it. This particular thief was credited with stealing the jeweled disemboweling knife from the temple of Ofla, the crocodile god, during the middle of Evensong, and the silver shoes from the patrician's finest racehorse while it was in the process of winning a race. When Gritola Mimpsi, vice president of the Thieves' Guild, was jostled in the marketplace, and then found on returning home that a freshly stolen handful of diamonds had vanished from their place of concealment, he knew who to blame. This was because Gritola had swallowed the jewels for safekeeping. This was the type of thief that could steal the initiative, the moment, and the words right out of your mouth. However, it was the first time it had stolen something that not only asked it to, in a low but authoritative voice, but gave precise and somehow unarguable instructions about how it was to be disposed of. It was that cusp of the night that marks the turning point of Ankh Morpork's busy day, when those who make their living under the sun are resting after their labours, and those who turn an honest dollar by the cold light of the moon are just getting up the energy to go to work. The day had in fact reached that gentle point when it was too late for housebreaking and too early for burglary. Rincewind sat alone in the crowded smoky room and didn't take much notice when a shadow passed over the table and a sinister figure sat down opposite him. There was nothing very remarkable about sinister figures in this place. The drum jealously guarded its reputation as the most stylishly disreputable tavern in Ankh Morpork, and the big troll that now guarded the door carefully vetted customers for suitability in the way of black cloaks, glowing eyes, magic swords and so forth. Rincewind never found out what he did to the failures. Perhaps he ate them. When the figure spoke, its husky voice came from the depths of a black velvet hood lined with fur. Psst! it said. Not very, said Rincewind, who was in a state of mind where he couldn't resist it. But I'm working on it. I'm looking for a wizard, said the voice. It sounded hoarse with the effort of disguising itself, but again this was nothing unusual in the drum. Any wizard in particular, Rincewind said guardedly. People could get into trouble this way. One with a keen sense of tradition who would not mind taking risks for high reward, said another voice. It appeared to be coming from a round black leather box under the stranger's arm. Ah, said Rincewind, that um, narrows it down a bit then. Does this involve a perilous journey into unknown and probably dangerous lands? It does, as a matter of fact. Encounters with exotic creatures, Rincewind smiled, could be. Almost certain death? Almost certainly. Rincewind nodded and picked up his hat. Well, I wish you every success in your search, he said. I'd help you myself, only I'm not going to. What? Sorry, I don't know why, but the prospect of certain death in unknown lands at the claws of exotic monsters isn't for me. I've tried it, and I couldn't get the hang of it. Each to their own, that's what I say, and I was cut out for boredom. He rammed his hat on his head and stood up a little unsteadily. He'd reached the foot of the steps leading up into the street when a voice behind him said, A real wizard? would have accepted. He could have kept going. He could have walked up the stairs, out onto the street, got a pizza at the Clatchian takeaway in Snig's Alley, and gone to bed. History would have been totally changed, and in fact would also have been considerably shorter. But he would have got a good night's sleep, although, of course, it would have been on the floor. The future held its breath, waiting for Rincewind to walk away. He didn't do this for three reasons. One was alcohol... One was the tiny flame of pride that flickers in the heart of even the most careful coward. But the third was the voice. It was beautiful. It sounded like wild silk looks. The subject of wizards and sex is a complicated one, but as has already been indicated, it does in essence boil down to this. When it comes to wine, women and song, wizards are allowed to get drunk and croon as much as they like. The reason given to young wizards was that the practice of magic is hard and demanding and incompatible with sticky and furtive activities. 
It was a lot more sensible, they were told, to stop worrying about that sort of thing and really get to grips with Waddley's occult primer instead. Funnily enough, this didn't seem to satisfy, and young wizards suspected that the real reason was that the rules were made by old wizards, with poor memories. They were quite wrong, although the real reason had long been forgotten. If wizards were allowed to go around breeding all the time, there was a risk of sorcery. Of course, Rincewind had been around a bit, and had seen a thing or two, and had thrown off his early training to such an extent that he was quite capable of spending hours at a time in a woman's company without having to go off for a cold shower and lie down. But that voice would have made even a statue get down off its pedestal for a few brisk laps of the playing field and fifty press-ups. It was a voice that could make good morning sound like an invitation to bed. The stranger threw back her hood and shook out her long hair. It was almost pure white. Since her skin was tanned golden, the general effect was calculated to hit the male libido like a lead pipe. Rincewind hesitated and lost a splendid opportunity to keep quiet. From the top of the stairs came a thick, trollish voice. Here, I said you can't go through there. She sprang forward and shoved a round leather box into Rincewind's arms. Quick, you must come with me, she said. You are in great danger. Why? Because I will kill you if you don't. Yes, but hang on a minute. In that case, Rincewind protested feebly. Three members of the patrician's personal guard appeared at the top of the stairs. Their leader beamed down at the room. The smile suggested he intended to be the only one to enjoy the joke. Don't nobody move, he suggested. Rincewind heard a clatter behind him as more guards appeared in the back door. The drum's other customers paused with their hands on assorted hilts. These weren't the normal city watch, cautious and genially corrupt. These were walking slabs of muscle, and they were absolutely unbribable, if only because the patrician could outbid anyone else. Anyway, they didn't seem to be looking for anyone except the woman. The rest of the clientele relaxed and prepared to enjoy the show. Eventually, it might be worth joining it, once it was certain which was the winning side. Rincewind felt the pressure tighten on his wrist. "'Are you mad?' he hissed. "'This is messing with the man!' There was a swish, and the sergeant's shoulder suddenly sprouted a knife hilt. Then the girl spun around and with surgical precision planted a small foot in the groin of the first guard through the door. Twenty pairs of eyes watered in sympathy. Rincewind grabbed his hat and tried to dive under the nearest table, but that grip was steel. The next guard to approach got another knife in the thigh. Then she drew a sword like a very long needle and raised it threateningly. Anyone else? she said. One of the guards raised a crossbow. The librarian, sitting hunched over his drink, reached out a lazy arm like two broom handles strung with elastic and slapped him backwards. The bolt rebounded from the star on Rincewind's hat and hit the wall by a respected procurer who was sitting two tables away. His bodyguards threw another knife, which just missed a thief across the room, who picked up a bench and hit two guards, who struck out at the nearest drinkers. After that, one thing sort of led to another, and pretty soon everyone was fighting to get something, either away, out, or even. Rincewind found himself pulled relentlessly behind the bar. The landlord was sitting on his money-bags under the counter with two machetes crossed on his knees, enjoying a quiet drink. Occasionally the sound of breaking furniture would make him wince. The last thing Rincewind saw before he was dragged away was the librarian. Despite looking like a hairy rubber sack full of water, the orangutan had the weight and reach of any man in the room and was currently sitting on a guard's shoulders and trying with reasonable success to unscrew his head. Of more concern to Rincewind was the fact that he was being dragged upstairs. "'My dear lady,' he said desperately, "'what do you have in mind?' "'Is there a way onto the roof?' "'Yes. What's in this box?' "'Shh!' She halted at a bend in the dingy corridor, reached into a belt pouch, and scattered a handful of small metal objects on the floor behind them. Each one was made of four nails welded together, so that however the things fell, one was always pointing upwards.' She looked critically at the nearest doorway. "'You haven't got about four feet of cheese wire on you, have you?' she said wistfully. She'd drawn another throwing knife and was throwing it up and catching it again. "'I don't think so,' said Rincewind weakly. "'Pity, I've run out. OK, come on.' "'Why? I haven't done anything.' She went to the nearest window, pushed open the shutters, and paused with one leg over the sill. "'Fine,' she said over her shoulder. "'Stay here and explain it to the guards.' Why are they chasing you? I don't know. Oh, come on, there must be a reason. Oh, there's plenty of reasons. I just don't know which one. Are you coming? 
Rincewind hesitated. The patrician's personal guard was not known for its responsive approach to community policing, preferring to cut bits off instead. Among the things they took a dim view of was, well, basically, people being in the same universe. Running away from them was likely to be a capital offence. "'I think maybe I'll come along with you,' he said gallantly. "'A girl can come to harm all alone in this city.'" Freezing fog filled the streets of Ankh Morpork. The flares of street traders made little yellow halos in the smothering billows. The girl peered around a corner. We've lost them, she said. Stop shaking, you're safe now. What, you mean I'm all alone with a female homicidal maniac, said Rincewind. Fine. She relaxed and laughed at him. I was watching you, she said. An hour ago you were afraid that your future was going to be dull and uninteresting. I want it to be dull and uninteresting, said Rincewind bitterly. I'm afraid it's going to be short. Turn your back, she commanded, stepping into an alley. Not on your life, he said. I'm going to take my clothes off. Rincewind spun around, his face red. There was a rustling behind him and a waft of scent. After a while, she said, You can look round now. He didn't. You needn't worry. I've put some more on. He opened his eyes. The girl was wearing a demure white lace dress with fetchingly puffed sleeves. He opened his mouth. He realised with absolute clarity that up to now the trouble he'd been in was simple, modest, and nothing he couldn't talk his way out of given a decent chance, or, failing that, a running start. His brain started to send urgent messages to his sprinting muscles. But before they could get through, she'd grabbed his arm again. "'You really shouldn't be so nervous,' she said sweetly. "'Now!' Let's have a look at this thing. She pulled the lid off the round box in Rincewind's unprotesting hands and lifted out the Arch-Chancellor's hat. The octarines around its crown blazed in all eight colours of the spectrum, creating the kind of effects in the foggy alley that it would take a very clever special effects director and a whole battery of star filters to achieve by any non-magical means. As she raised it high in the air, it created its own nebula of colours that very few people ever see in legal circumstances. Rincewind sank gently to his knees. She looked down at him, puzzled. Legs given out? It's... it's... the hat. The Arch-Chancellor's hat, said Rincewind hoarsely. His eyes narrowed. You've stolen it, he shouted, struggling back to his feet and grabbing for the sparkling brim. It's just a hat. Give it to me this minute. Women mustn't touch it. It belongs to wizards. Why are you getting so worked up, she said. Rincewind opened his mouth. Rincewind closed his mouth. He wanted to say, It's the Arch-Chancellor's hat, don't you understand? It's worn by the head of all wizards. Well, on the head of the head of all wizards. No, metaphorically, it's worn by all wizards. Potentially, anyway. And it's what every wizard aspires to. It's the symbol of organised magic. It's the pointy tip of the profession. It's a symbol. It's what it means to all wizards. And so on. Rincewind had been told about the hat on his first day at the university, and it had sunk into his impressionable mind like a lead weight into a jelly. He wasn't sure of much in the world, but he was certain that the Arch-Chancellor's hat was important. Maybe even wizards need a little magic in their lives. Rincewind, said the hat. He stared at the girl. It spoke to me. Like a voice in your head? Yes. It did that to me, too. But it knew my name. Of course we do, stupid fellow. We are supposed to be a magic hat, after all. The hat's voice wasn't only clothy, it also had a strange choral effect, as if an awful lot of voices were talking at the same time in almost perfect unison. Rincewind pulled himself together. Oh, great and wonderful hat, he said pompously. Strike down this impudent girl who has had the audacity. Nay, oh, do shut up. She stole us because we ordered her to. It was a near thing, too. But she's a... Rincewind hesitated. She's of the... Female persuasion, he muttered. So was your mother. Yes, well, but she ran away before I was born, Rincewind mumbled. 
of all the disreputable taverns in all the city you could have walked into, you walked into his, complained the hat. He was the only wizard I could find, said the girl. He looked the part. He had wizard written on his hat and everything. Don't believe everything you read. Too late now, anyway. We haven't got much time. Hold on, hold on, said Rincewind urgently. What's going on? You wanted her to steal you. Why haven't we got much time? He pointed an accusing finger at the hat. Anyway, you can't go around letting yourself be stolen. You're supposed to be on on the Arch-Chancellor's head. The ceremony was tonight. I should have been there. Something terrible is happening at the university. It is vital that we are not taken back, do you understand? You must take us to Clatch, where there is someone fit to wear me. Why? There was something very strange about the voice, Rincewind decided. It sounded impossible to disobey, as though it was solid destiny. If it told him to walk over a cliff, he thought, he'd be halfway down before it could occur to him to disobey. The death of all wizardry is at hand. Rincewind looked around guiltily. Why? he said. The world is going to end. What again? said Rincewind. I mean it, said the hat sulkily. The triumph of the ice giants, the apocalypse, the tea time of the gods, the whole thing. Can we stop it? The future is uncertain on that point. Rincewind's expression of determined terror faded slowly. Is this a riddle? he said. Perhaps it would be simpler if you just did what you're told and didn't try to understand things, said the hat. Young woman, you will put us back in our box. A great many people will shortly be looking for us. Hey, hold on, said Rincewind. I've seen you around here for years and you've never talked before. I didn't have anything that needed to be said. Rincewind nodded. That seemed reasonable. Look, just shove it in its box and let's get going, said the girl. A bit more respect, if you please, young lady, said Rincewind haughtily. That is the symbol of ancient wizardry you happen to be addressing. You carry it, then, she said. Hey, look, said Rincewind, scrambling along after her as she swept down the alleys, crossed a narrow street and entered another alley between a couple of houses that leaned together so drunkenly that their upper stories actually touched. She stopped. Well, she snapped. You're the mystery thief, aren't you? he said. Everyone's been talking about you, how you've taken things even from locked rooms and everything. You're different than I imagined. Oh, she said coldly. How? Well, you're shorter. Oh, come on. The street cressets, not particularly common in this part of the city in any case, gave out altogether here. There was nothing but watchful darkness ahead. I said, come on, she repeated. What are you afraid of? Rincewind took a deep breath. Murderers, muggers, thieves, assassins, pickpockets, cut purses, reavers, snigsmen, rapists and robbers, he said. That's the shades you're going into. The Ankh-Morpork Merchants Guild publication Welcome to Ankh-Morpork, City of One Thousand Surprises, describes the area of old Morpork known as the Shades as a folkloric network of old alleys and picturesque streets where excitement and romance lurks around every corner and much may be heard the traditional street cries of old time, also the laughing visages of denwizens as they go about their business private. In other words, you have been warned. Yes, but people won't come looking for us in here, she said. Oh, they'll come all right. They just won't come out, said Rincewind. Nor will we. I mean, a beautiful young woman like you, it, it, it doesn't bear thinking about. I mean, some of the people in there. But I'll have you to protect me, she said. Rincewind thought he heard the sound of marching feet several streets away. You know, he sighed, I knew you'd say that. Down these mean streets a man must walk, he thought, and along some of them he will break into a run. It is so black in the shades on this foggy spring night that it would be too dark to read about Rincewind's progress through the eerie streets. 
so the descriptive passage will lift up above the level of the ornate rooftops, the forest of twisty chimneys, and admire the few twinkling stars that manage to pierce the swirling billows. It will try to ignore the sounds drifting up from below, the patter of feet, the rushes, the gristly noises, the groans, the muffled screams. It could be that some wild animal is pacing through the shades after two weeks on a starvation diet. Somewhere near the centre of the shades, the district has never been adequately mapped, is a small courtyard. Here, at least, there are torches on the walls, but the light they throw is the light of the shades themselves, mean, reddened, dark at the core. Rinswin staggered into the yard and hung onto the wall for support. The girl stepped into the ruddy light behind him, humming to herself. Are you all right? she said. No, said Rinswind. Sorry? Those men, he bubbled. I mean, the way you kicked his... I mean, when you grabbed them by the... When you stabbed the one right in the... Who are you? My name is Kanina. Rinswind looked at her blankly for some time. Sorry, he said. Doesn't ring a bell. I haven't been here long, she said. Yes, I didn't think you were from round these parts, he said. I would have heard. I've taken lodgings here. Shall we go in? Rinswind glanced up at the dingy pole just visible in the smoky light of the spitting torches. It indicated that the hostelry behind the small dark door was the troll's head. It might be thought that the mended drum, seen of unseemly scuffles only an hour ago, was a seedy, disreputable tavern. In fact, it was a reputable, disreputable tavern. Its customers had a certain rough-hewn respectability. They might murder each other in an easy-going way, as between equals, but they didn't do it vindictively. A child could go in for a glass of lemonade and be certain of getting nothing worse than a clip round the ear when his mother heard his expanded vocabulary. On quiet nights, and when he was certain the librarian wasn't going to come in, the landlord was even known to put bowls of peanuts in the bar. The troll's head was a cesspit of a different odour. Its customers, if they reformed, tidied themselves up and generally improved their image out of all recognition, might, just might, aspire to be considered the utter dregs of humanity. And in the shades, a dreg is a dreg. By the way, the thing on the pole isn't a sign. When they decided to call the place the troll's head, they didn't mess about. Feeling sick and clutching the grumbling hat box to his chest, Rincewind stepped inside. Silence. It wrapped itself around them, nearly as thickly as the smoke of a dozen substances guaranteed to turn any normal brain to cheese. Suspicious eyes peered through the smog. A couple of dice clattered to a halt on a tabletop. They sounded very loud and probably weren't showing Rincewind's lucky number. He was aware of the stares of several score of customers as he followed the demure and surprisingly small figure of Conina into the room. He looked sideways into the leering faces of men who would kill him sooner than think, and in fact would find it a great deal easier. Where a respectable tavern would have had a bar, there was just a row of squat black bottles and a couple of big barrels on trestles against the wall. The silence tightened like a tourniquet. Any minute now, Rincewind thought. A big fat man, wearing nothing but a fur vest and a leather loincloth, pushed back his stool and lurched to his feet and winked evilly at his colleagues. When his mouth opened, it was like a hole with a hem. Looking for a man, little lady, he said. She looked up at him. Please keep away. A snake of laughter writhed around the room. Canina's mouth snapped shut like a letterbox. Ah, uh, the big man gurgled. That's right. I likes a girl with spirit. Canina's hand moved. It was a pale blur, stopping here and here. After a few seconds of disbelief, the man gave a little grunt and folded up, very slowly. Rincewind shrank back as every other man in the room leaned forward. His instinct was to run, and he knew it was an instinct that would get him instantly killed. It was the shades out there. Whatever was going to happen to him next was going to happen to him here. It was not a reassuring thought. A hand closed around his mouth. Two more grabbed the hat box from his arms. Canina spun past him, lifting her skirt to place a neat foot on a target beside Rincewind's waist. Someone whimpered in his ear and collapsed. As the girl pirouetted gracefully around, she picked up two bottles, knocked out their bottoms on the shelf, and landed with their jagged ends held out in front of her. More pork daggers, they were called, in the patois of the streets. In the face of them, the troll's head clientele lost interest. Someone got the hat, Rincewind muttered through dry lips. They slipped out the back way.
She glared at him and made for the door. The head's crowd of customers parted automatically, like sharks recognising another shark, and Rincewind darted anxiously after her before they came to any conclusion about him. They ran out into another alley and pounded down it. Rincewind tried to keep up with the girl. People following her tended to tread on sharp things, and he wasn't sure she'd remember he was on her side, whatever side that was. A thin, half-hearted drizzle was falling, and at the end of the alley was a faint blue glow. Wait! The terror in Rincewind's voice was enough to slow her down. What's wrong? Why's he stopped? I'll ask him, said Canina firmly. Why is he covered in snow? She stopped and turned round, arms thrust into her sides, one foot tapping impatiently on the damp cobbles. Rincewind, I've known you for an hour, and I'm astonished you've lived even that long. Yes, but I have, haven't I? I've got a sort of talent for it. Ask anyone. I'm an addict. Addicted to what? Life. I got hooked on it at an early age, and I don't want to give it up. And take it from me, this doesn't look right. Canina looked back at the figure, surrounded by the glowing blue aura. It seemed to be looking at something in his hands. Snow was settling on its shoulder like really bad dandruff, terminal dandruff. Rincewind had an instinct for these things, and he had a deep suspicion that the man had gone where shampoo would be no help at all. They sidled along a glistening wall. There's something very strange about him, she conceded. You mean the way he's got his own private blizzard? Doesn't seem to upset him. He's smiling. A frozen grin, I'd call it. The man's icicle-hung hands had been taking the lid off the box and the glow from the hat's octarines shone up into a pair of greedy eyes that were already heavily rhymed with frost. Know him? said Canina. Rincewind shrugged. I've seen him around, he said. He's called Larry the Fox or Fezzy the Stoat or something. Some sort of rodent, anyway. Just steals things. He's harmless. He looks incredibly cold, Canina shivered. I expect he's gone to a warmer place. Don't you think we should shut the box? It's perfectly safe now, said the hat's voice from inside the glow, and so perish all enemies of wizardry. Rincewind wasn't about to trust what a hat said. We need something to shut the lid, he muttered. A knife or something. You wouldn't have one, would you? Look the other way, Canina warned. There was a rustle and another gust of perfume. You can look back now. Rincewind was handed a twelve-inch throwing knife. He took it gingerly. Little particles of metal glinted on its edge. Thanks, he turned back. Not leaving you short, am I? I have others. I'll bet. Rincewind reached out gingerly with the knife. As it neared the leather box, its blade went white and started to steam. He whimpered a little as the cold struck his hand. A burning, stabbing cold, a cold that crept up his arm and made a determined assault on his mind. He forced his numb fingers into action and with great effort nudged the edge of the lid with the tip of the blade. The glow faded. The snow became sleet, then melted into drizzle. Canina nudged him aside and pulled the box out from the frozen arms. I wish there was something we could do for him. It seems wrong to just leave him here. He won't mind, said Rincewind with conviction. Yes, but we could at least lean him against the wall or something. Rincewind nodded and grabbed the frozen thief by his icicle arm. The man slipped out of his grasp and hit the cobbles, where he shattered. Canina looked at the pieces. Ugh, she said. There was a disturbance further up the alley, coming from the back door of the troll's head. Rincewind felt the knife snatched from his hand and then go past his ear in a flat trajectory that ended in the doorpost twenty yards away. A head that had been sticking out withdrew hurriedly. We'd better go, said Canina, hurrying along the alley. Is there somewhere we can hide, your place? I generally sleep at the university, said Rincewind, hopping along behind her. You must not return to the university, growled the hat from the depths of its box. Rincewind nodded distractedly. The idea certainly didn't seem attractive. Anyway, they won't allow women inside after dark, he said. And before dark? Not then either. Canina sighed. That's silly. What have you wizards got against women, then? Rincewind's brow wrinkled. We're not supposed to put anything against women, he said. That's the whole point. Sinister grey mists rolled through the docks of Moorpork, dripping from the rigging, coiling around the drunken rooftops, lurking in alleys. The docks at night were thought by some to be even more dangerous than the shades. Two muggers, a sneak thief and someone who'd merely tapped Canina on the shoulder to ask her the time, had already found this out. 
Do you mind if I ask you a question, said Rincewind, stepping over the luckless pedestrian who lay coiled around his private pane? Well, I mean, I wouldn't like to cause offence. Well? It's just I can't help noticing, hmm? You have this certain way with strangers. Rincewind ducked, but nothing happened. What are you doing down there? said Canina testily. Sorry, I know what you're thinking. I can't help it. I take after my father. Who was he then, Cohen the Barbarian? Rincewind grinned to show it was a joke. At least his lips moved in a desperate crescent. No need to laugh about it, wizard. What? It's not my fault. Rincewind's lips moved soundlessly. Sorry, he said. Have I got this right? Your father really is Cohen the Barbarian? Yes, the girl scowled at Rincewind. Everyone has to have a father, she added. Even you, I imagine. She peered around a corner. All clear, come on, she said. And then, when they were striding along the damp cobbles, she continued. I expect your father was a wizard, probably. I shouldn't think so, said Rincewind. Wizardry isn't allowed to run in families. He paused. He knew Cohen. He'd even been a guest at one of his weddings when he'd married a girl of Canina's age. You could say this about Cohen. He crammed every hour full of minutes. A lot of people would like to take after Cohen. I mean, he was the best fighter, the greatest thief. He... A lot of men would, Canina snapped. She leaned against a wall and glared at him. Listen, she said. There's this long word, see. An old witch told me about it. Can't remember it. You wizards know about long words. Rincewind thought about long words. Marmalade, he volunteered. She shook her head irritably. It means you take after your parents. Rincewind frowned. He wasn't too good on the subject of parents. Um, kleptomania? Uh, recidivist? He hazarded. Begins with an H. Hedonism? said Rincewind desperately. Hereditary, said Canina. This witch explained it to me. My mother was a temple dancer for some mad god or other, and father rescued her, and they stayed together for a while. They say I get my looks and figure from her. And very good they are too, said Rincewind, with hopeless gallantry. She blushed. Yes, well, but from him I got sinews you could moor a boat with, reflexes like a snake on a hot tin, and a terrible urge to steal things, and this dreadful sensation every time I meet someone that I should be throwing a knife through his eyes at ninety feet. I can too she added with a trace of pride. Gosh, it tends to put men off. Well, it would, said Rincewind weakly. I mean, when they find out, it's very hard to hang on to a boyfriend. Except by the throat, I imagine, said Rincewind. Not what you really need to build up a proper relationship. No, I can see, said Rincewind. Still pretty good if you want to be a famous barbarian thief. But not, said Canina, if you want to be a hairdresser. Ah. They stared into the mist. Really a hairdresser, said Rincewind. Canina sighed. Not much call for a barbarian hairdresser, I expect, said Rincewind. I mean, no one wants a shampoo and beheading. It's just that every time I see a manicure set, I get this terrible urge to lay about me with a double-handed cuticle knife. I mean, sword, said Canina. Rincewind sighed. I know how it is, he said. I wanted to be a wizard. But you are a wizard. Ah, well, of course, but uh, quiet. Rincewind found himself rammed against the wall, where a trickle of condensed mist inexplicably began to drip down his neck. A broad throwing knife had mysteriously appeared in Canina's hand, and she was crouched like a jungle animal, or even worse, a jungle human. What? Rincewind began. Shut up, she hissed. Something's coming. She stood up in one fluid movement, spun on one leg, and let the knife go. There was a single hollow wooden thud. Canina stood and stared. For once, the heroic blood that pounded through her veins, drowning out all chances of a lifetime in a pink penny, was totally at a loss. I've just killed a wooden box, she said. Rincewind looked round the corner. The luggage stood in the dripping street, the knife still quivering in its lid, and stared at her. Then it changed its position slightly, its little legs moving in a complicated tango pattern, and stared at Rincewind. The luggage didn't have any features at all apart from a lock and a couple of hinges, but it could stare better than a rock full of iguanas. It could outstare a glass-eyed statue. 
When it came to a look of betrayed pathos, the luggage could even leave the average kicked spaniel moping back in its kennel. It had several arrowheads and broken swords sticking into it. What is it? hissed Canina. It's just the luggage, said Rincewind wearily. Does it belong to you? Not really. Sort of. Is it dangerous? The luggage shuffled round to stare at her again. There's two schools of thought about that, said Rincewind. There's some people who say it's dangerous and others who say it's very dangerous. What do you think? The luggage raised its lid a fraction. The luggage was made from the wood of the sapient pear tree, a plant so magical that it had nearly died out on the disc and survived in only one or two places. It was a sort of rose bay willow herb, only instead of bomb sites, it sprouted in areas that had seen vast expenditures of magic. Wizard's staves were traditionally made of it. So was the luggage. Among the luggage's magical qualities was a fairly simple and direct one. It would follow its adopted owner anywhere. Not anywhere in any particular set of dimensions or country or universe or lifetime. Anywhere. It was about as easy to shake off as a head cold and considerably more unpleasant. The luggage was also extremely protective of its owner. It would be hard to describe its attitude to the rest of creation, but one could start with the phrase bloody-minded malevolence and work up from there. Canina stared at that lid. It looked very much like a mouth. I think I'd vote for terminally dangerous, she said. He likes crisps, volunteered Rincewind, and then added, well, that's a bit strong, it... Eat crisps. What about people? Oh, yeah, and people. About fifteen so far, I think. Were they good or bad? Just dead, I think. It also does your laundry for you. You put your clothes in and they come out washed and ironed. And covered in blood? You know, that's the funny thing, said Rincewind. The funny thing? repeated Canina, her eyes not leaving the luggage. Yes, because, you see, the inside isn't always the same. It's sort of multidimensional and... How does it feel about women? Oh, it's not choosy. It ate a book of spells last year, sulked for three days and then spat it out. It's horrible, said Canina, and backed away. Oh, yes, said Rincewind, absolutely. I mean the way it stares. It's very good at it, isn't it? We must leave for Clatch, said a voice from the hatbox. One of those boats will be adequate. Commandeer it. Rincewind looked at the dim, mist-wreathed shapes that loomed in the mist under a forest of rigging. Here and there, a riding light made a little fuzzy ball of light in the gloom. Hard to disobey, isn't it? said Canina. I'm trying, said Rincewind. Sweat prickled on his forehead. Go aboard now, said the hat. Rincewind's feet began to shuffle of their own accord. Why are you doing this to me? he moaned. Because I have no alternative, believe me. If I could have found an eighth-level mage, I would have done so. I must not be worn. Why not? You are the Arch-Chancellor's hat. And through me speak all the Arch-Chancellors who ever lived. I am the university. I am the law. I am the symbol of magic under the control of men, and I will not be worn by a sorcerer. There must be no more sorcerers. The world is too worn out. For sorcery. Canina coughed. Did you uh, understand any of that? She said cautiously. I understood some of it, but I didn't believe it, said Rincewind. His feet remained firmly rooted to the cobbles. They called me a figure hat. The voice was heavy with sarcasm. Fat wizards who betray everything the university ever stood for. And they called me a figure hat. Rincewind, I command you, and you, madam, serve me well and I will grant you your deepest desire. How can you grant my deepest desire if the world's going to end? The hat appeared to think about it. Well, have you got a deepest desire that need only take a couple of minutes? Look, how can you do magic? You're just a... a Rincewind's voice trailed off. I am magic. Proper magic. Besides, you don't get worn by some of the world's greatest wizards for two thousand years without learning a few things. Now we must flee, but with dignity, of course. Rincewind looked pathetically at Canina, who shrugged again. Don't ask me, she said. This looks like an adventure. I'm doomed to have them, I'm afraid. That's genetics for you. The study of genetics on the disc had failed at an early stage when wizards tried the experimental crossing of such well-known subjects as fruit flies and sweet peas. 
Unfortunately, they didn't quite grasp the fundamentals, and the resultant offspring, a sort of green bean thing that buzzed, led a short, sad life before being eaten by a passing spider. But I'm no good at them. Believe me, I've been through dozens, Rincewind wailed. Ah, experience, said the hat. No, really, I'm a terrible coward. I always run away. Rincewind's chest heaved. Danger has stared me in the back of the head, oh, hundreds of times. I don't want you to go into danger. Good. I want you to stay out of danger. Rincewind sagged. Why me? he moaned. For the good of the university, for the honour of wizardry, for the sake of the world, for your heart's desire. And I'll freeze you alive if you don't. Rincewind breathed a sigh almost of relief. He wasn't good on bribes or cajolery or appeals to his better nature, but threats, now threats, were familiar. He knew where he was with threats. The sun dawned on small God's day like a badly poached egg. The mists had closed in over Ankh-Morpork in streamers of silver and gold, damp, warm, silent. There was the distant grumbling of springtime thunder out on the plains. It seemed warmer than it ought to be. Wizards normally slept late. On this morning, however, many of them had got up early and were wandering the corridors aimlessly. They could feel the change in the air. The university was filling up with magic. Of course, it was usually full of magic anyway, but it was an old, comfortable magic, as exciting and dangerous as a bedroom slipper. But seeping through the ancient fabric was a new magic, sore-edged and vibrant, bright and cold as comet fire. It sleeted through the stones and crackled off sharp edges like static electricity on the nylon carpet of creation. It buzzed and sizzled. It curled wizardly beards, poured in wisps of octarine smoke from fingers that had done nothing more mystical for three decades than a little light illusion. How can the effect be described with delicacy and taste? For most of the wizards, it was like being an elderly man who suddenly faced with a beautiful young woman finds to his horror and delight and astonishment that the flesh is suddenly as willing as the spirit. And in the halls and corridors of the university, the word was being whispered, Sorcery. A few wizards surreptitiously tried spells that they hadn't been able to master for years, and watched in amazement as they unrolled perfectly. Sheepishly at first, and then with confidence, and then with shouts and whoops, they threw fireballs to one another, or produced live doves out of their hats, or made multicoloured sequins fall out of the air. Sorcery. One or two wizards, stately men who had hitherto done nothing more blameworthy than eat a live oyster, turned themselves invisible and chased the maids and bedders through the corridors. Sorcery. Some of the bolder spirits had tried out ancient flying spells and were popping a little uncertainly among the rafters. Sorcery. Only the librarian didn't share in the manic breakfast. He watched the antics for some time, pursing his prehensile lips, and then knuckled stiffly off towards his library. If anyone had bothered to notice, they'd have heard him bolting the door. It was deathly quiet in the library. The books were no longer frantic. They'd passed through their fear and out into the calm waters of abject terror, and they crouched on their shelves like so many mesmerised rabbits. A long hairy arm reached up and grabbed Casplock's complete lexicon of magic with precepts for the wise before it could back away, soothed its terror with a long-fingered hand, and opened it under S., the librarian smoothed the trembling page gently and ran a horny nail down the entries until he came to Sorcerer, N, Mythical. A proto-wizard, a doorway through which new magic may enter the world, a wizard not limited by the physical capabilities of his own body, not by destiny, nor by death. It is written that there once were sorcerers in the youth of the world, but not may there be by now, and blessed be, for sorcery is not for men, and the return of sorcery would mean the end of the world. If the Creator had meant men to be as goddess, he would have given them wings. See also the Apocalypse, the Legend of the Ice Giants, and the Tea Time of the Goddess. The librarian read the cross-references, turned back to the first entry, and stared at it through deep, dark eyes for a long time. Then he put the book back carefully, crept under his desk, and pulled the blanket over his head. But in the minstrel gallery over the great hall, 
Carding and Spelter watched the scene with entirely different emotions. Standing side by side, they looked almost exactly like the number ten. "'What is happening?' said Spelter. He'd had a sleepless night and wasn't thinking very straight. "'Magic is flowing into the university.' said Carding. That's what sorcerer means. A channel for magic. Real magic, my boy. Not the tired old stuff we've made do with these past centuries. This is a dawning of a... Um, new um, dawn? Exactly. A time of miracles. Um, uh, Anus Mirabilis? Carding frowned. Yes, he said eventually. Something like that, I expect. You have quite a way with words, you know. Thank you, brother. The senior wizard appeared to ignore the familiarity. Instead, he turned and leaned on the carved rail, watching the magical displays below them. His hands automatically went to his pockets for his tobacco pouch, and then paused. He grinned and snapped his fingers. A lighted cigar appeared in his mouth. Haven't been able to do that in years, he mused. Big changes, my boy. They haven't realised it yet, but it's the end of the orders and levels. That was just a rationing system. We don't need them any more. Where is the boy? Still asleep, Spelter began. I am here, said Coyne. He stood in the archway leading to the senior wizard's quarters, holding the octoron staff that was half again as tall as he was. Little veins of yellow fire coruscated across its matte black surface, which was so dark that it looked like a slit in the world. Spelter felt the golden eyes bore through him as if his innermost thoughts were being scrolled across the back of his skull. "'Ah,' he said in a voice that he believed was jolly and avuncular, but in fact sounded like a strangled death-rattle. After a start like that, his contribution could only get worse, and it did. "'I see you're um, up,' he said. "'My dear boy,' said Carding. Coyne gave him a long, freezing stare. I saw you last night, he said. Are you puissant? Only mildly, said Carding, hurriedly recalling the boy's tendency to treat wizardry as a terminal game of conquers. But not so puissant as you, I'm sure. Am I to be made Arch-Chancellor, as is my destiny? Oh, absolutely, said Carding. No doubt about it. May I have a look at your staff? Such an interesting design. He reached out a pudgy hand. It was a shocking breach of etiquette in any case. No wizard should even think of touching another's staff without his express permission. But there are people who can't quite believe that children are fully human and think that the operation of normal good manners doesn't apply to them. Carding's fingers curled around the black staff. There was a noise that Spelter felt rather than heard, and Carding bounced across the gallery and struck the opposite wall with a sound like a sack of lard hitting a pavement. "'Don't do that,' said Coyne. He turned and looked through Spelter, who had gone pale, and added, "'Help him up. He's probably not badly hurt.' The bursar scuttled hurriedly across the floor and bent over Carding, who was breathing heavily and had gone an odd colour. He patted the wizard's hand until Carding opened one eye. "'Did you see what happened?' he whispered. "'I'm not sure. Um, what did happen?' hissed Spelter. "'It bit me.' "'The next time you touch the staff,' said Coyne, matter-of-factly. You will die. Do you understand? Carding raised his head gently, in case bits of it fell off. Absolutely, he said. And now I would like to see the university, the boy continued. I have heard a great deal about it. Spelter helped Carding to his unsteady feet and supported him as they trotted obediently after the boy. Don't touch his staff, muttered Carding. I'll um, remember not to said Spelter firmly. What did it feel like? Have you ever been bitten by a viper? No. In that case, you'll understand exactly what it felt like. Hmm? It wasn't like a snake bite at all. They hurried after the determined figure as Coyne marched down the stairs and through the ravished doorway of the Great Hall. Spelter dodged in front, anxious to make a good impression. This is the Great Hall, he said. Coyne turned his golden gaze towards him, and the wizard felt his mouth dry up. It's called that because it's a hall, do you see? Uh, and big, he swallowed. It's a big hall, he said, fighting to stop the last of his coherence being burned away by the searchlight of that stair. 
a great big hall, which is why it's called... Who are those people? said Coyne. He pointed with his staff. The assembled wizards who had turned to watch him enter backed out of the way as though the staff was a flamethrower. Spelter followed the sorcerer's stare. Coyne was pointing to the portraits and statues of former arch-chancellors, which decorated the walls. Full-bearded and point-hatted, clutching ornamental scrolls or holding mysterious symbolic bits of astrological equipment, they stared down with ferocious self-importance, or possibly chronic constipation. "'From these walls,' said Carding, two hundred supreme mages look down upon you.' "'I don't care for them,' said Coyne, and the staff streamed octorine fire. The arch-chancellors vanished. "'And the windows are too small. The ceiling is too high. Everything is too old.' The wizards threw themselves flat as the staff flared and spat. Spelter pulled his hat over his eyes and rolled under a table when the very fabric of the university flowed around him. Wood creaked, stone groaned. Something tapped him on the head. He screamed. Stop that, shouted Carding above the din, and pull your hat up. Show a little dignity. Why are you under the table, then? said Spelter sourly. We must seize our opportunity. What, like the staff? Follow me. Spelter emerged into a bright, a horrible bright new world. Gone were the rough stone walls, gone were the dark owl-haunted rafters, gone were the tile floor with its eye-boggling pattern of black and white tiles. Gone, too, were the high small windows with their gentle patina of antique grease. Raw sunlight streamed into the hall for the first time. The wizards stared at one another, mouths open, and what they saw was not what they'd always thought they'd seen. The unforgiving rays transmuted rich gold embroidery into dusty gilt exposed opulent fabric as rather stained and threadbare velvet, turned fine-flowing beards into nicotine-stained tangles, betrayed splendid diamonds as rather inferior arc-stones. The fresh light probed and prodded, stripping away the comfortable shadows. And, Spelter had to admit, what was left didn't inspire confidence. He was suddenly acutely aware that under his robes, his tattered, badly faded robes, he realised with an added spasm of guilt, the robes with the perforated area where the mice had got at them, he was still wearing his bedroom slippers. The hall was now almost all glass. What wasn't glass was marble. It was all so splendid that Spelter felt quite unworthy. He turned to Carding and saw that his fellow wizard was staring at coin with his eyes gleaming. Most of the other wizards had the same expression. If wizards weren't attracted to power, they wouldn't be wizards, and this was real power. The staff had them charmed like so many cobras. Carding reached out to touch the boy on the shoulder and then thought the better of it. Magnificent, he said instead. He turned to the assembled wizardry and raised his arms. My brothers, he intoned, we have in our midst a wizard of great power. Spelter tugged at his robe. He nearly killed you, he hissed. Carding ignored him. And I propose, Carding swallowed, I propose him for Arch-Chancellor. There was a moment's silence, and then a burst of cheering and shouts of dissent. Several quarrels broke out at the back of the crowd. The wizards nearer the front weren't quite so ready to argue. They could see the smile on Coyne's face. It was bright and cold, like the smile on the face of the moon. There was a commotion, and an elderly wizard fought his way to the front of the throng. Spelter recognised Ovin Harkardly, the seventh-level wizard and a lecturer in law. He was red with anger, except where he was white with rage. When he spoke, his words seared through the air like so many knives, clipped as topiary, crisp as biscuits. "'Are you mad?' he said. "'No one but a wizard of the eighth level may become arch-chancellor, and he must be elected by the other most senior wizards in solemn convocation!' Duly guided by the gods, of course. It is the law! The very idea! Harkardly had studied the law of magic for years, and because magic always tends to be a two-way process, it had made its mark on him. He gave the impression of being as fragile as a cheese straw, and in some unaccountable way the dryness of his endeavours had left him with the ability to pronounce punctuation. He stood vibrating with indignation, and, he became aware, he was rapidly standing alone. In fact, he was at the centre of an expanding circle of empty floor, fringed with wizards who were suddenly ready to swear that they'd never clapped eyes on him in their life. Coyne raised his staff. Harkardly raised an admonitory finger. 
You do not frighten me, young man, he snapped. Talented you may be, but magical talent alone is not enough. There are many other qualities required of a great wizard. Administrative ability, for example, and wisdom, and the... Coin lowered his staff. The law applies to all wizards, does it not? he said. Absolutely! It was drawn up! But I am not a wizard, Lord Harkardley. The wizard hesitated. Ah, he said, and hesitated again. Good point, he said. But I am well aware of the need for wisdom, foresight and good advice, and I would be honoured if you could see your way clear to providing those much-valued commodities. For example, why is it that wizards do not rule the world? What? It is a simple question. There are in this room... Coin's lips moved for a fraction of a second. 472 wizards, skilled in the most subtle of arts. Yet all you rule are these few acres of rather inferior architecture. Why is this? The most senior wizards exchanged knowing glances. Such it may appear, said Harkardly eventually. But, my child, we have domains beyond the ken of temporal power. His eyes gleamed. Magic can surely take the mind to inner landscapes of arcane... Yes, yes, said Coyne. Yet there are extremely solid walls outside your university. Why is this? Carding ran his tongue over his lips. It was extraordinary. The child was speaking his thoughts. You squabble for power, said Coyne sweetly. And yet beyond these walls, to the man who carts night soil or the average merchant, is there really so much difference between a high-level mage and a mere conjurer? Harkardly stared at him in complete and untrammeled astonishment. "'Child, it's obvious to the meanest citizen,' he said, "'the robes and trimmings themselves.' "'Ah,' said Coyne, "'the robes and trimmings, of course.' A short, heavy and thoughtful silence filled the hall. "'It seems to me,' said Coyne eventually, "'that wizards rule only wizards. "'Who rules in the reality outside?' "'As far as the city is concerned, "'that would be the patrician, Lord Vetinari,' said Carding, with some caution. "'And is he a fair and just ruler?' Carding thought about it. "'The patrician's spy network was said to be superb.' I would say, he said carefully, that he is unfair and unjust, but scrupulously even-handed. He is unfair and unjust to everyone, without fear or favour. And you are content with this? said Coyne. Carding tried not to catch Harkardley's eye. It's not a case of being content with it, he said. I suppose we've not given it much thought. A wizard's true vocation, you see... Is it really true that the wise suffer themselves to be ruled in this way? Carding growled. Of course not. Don't be silly. We merely tolerate it. That's what wisdom is all about. You'll find that out when you grow up. It's a case of biding one's time. Where is this patrician? I would like to see him. That can be arranged, of course, said Carding. The patrician is always graciously pleased to grant wizards an interview, and... Now I will grant him an interview, said Coyne. He must learn that wizards have bided their time long enough. Stand back, please, he pointed the staff. The temporal ruler of the sprawling city of Ankh-Morpork was sitting in his chair at the foot of the steps leading up to the throne, looking for any signs of intelligence in intelligence reports. The throne had been empty for more than 2,000 years since the death of the last of the line of the kings of Ankh. Legend said that one day the city would have a king again, and went on with various comments about magic swords, strawberry birthmarks, and all the other things that legends gabble on about in these circumstances. In fact, the only real qualification now was the ability to stay alive for more than about five minutes after revealing the existence of any magic swords or birthmarks, because the great merchant families of Ankh had been ruling the city for the last twenty centuries, and were about as ready to relinquish power as the average limpet is to let go of its rock. The current patrician, head of the extremely rich and powerful Vetinari family, was thin, tall, and apparently as cold-blooded as a dead penguin. 
Just by looking at him, you could tell he was the sort of man you'd expect to keep a white cat and caress it idly while sentencing people to death in a piranha tank. And you'd hazard for a good measure that he probably collected rare thin porcelain, turning it over and over in his blue-white fingers while distant screams echoed from the depths of the dungeons. You wouldn't put it past him to use the word exquisite and have thin lips. He looked the kind of person who, when they blink, you mark it off on the calendar. Practically none of this was the case, although he did have a small and exceedingly elderly wire-haired terrier called Waffles that smelled badly and wheezed at people. It was said to be the only thing in the entire world he truly cared about. He did, of course, sometimes have people horribly tortured to death, but this was considered to be perfectly acceptable behaviour for a civic ruler and generally approved of by the overwhelming majority of citizens. The overwhelming majority of citizens being defined in this case as everyone not currently hanging upside down over a scorpion pit. The people of Ankh are of a practical persuasion and felt that the patrician's edict forbidding all street theatre and mime artists made up for a lot of things. He didn't administer a reign of terror, just the occasional light shower. The patrician sighed and laid the latest report on top of the large heap beside the chair. When he'd been a little boy, he'd seen a showman who could keep a dozen plates spinning in the air. If the man had been capable of working the same trick with a hundred of them, Lord Vetinari considered, he would just about begin to be ready for training in the art of ruling Ark Morpork, a city once described as resembling an overturned termite heap without the charm. He glanced out of the window at the distant pillar of the Tower of Art, the centre of the unseen university, and wondered vaguely whether any of those tiresome old fools could come up with a better way of collating all this paperwork. They wouldn't, of course. You couldn't expect a wizard to understand anything as basic as elementary civic espionage. He sighed again and picked up the transcript of what the president of the Thieves' Guild had said to his deputy at midnight in the soundproof room hidden behind the office in the Guild headquarters and was in the Great Hall, was not in the Great Hall of Unseen University where he had spent some interminable dinners, but there were a lot of wizards around him and they were different. Like death, which some of the city's less fortunate citizens considered he intimately resembled, the patrician never got angry until he had had time to think about it. But sometimes he thought very quickly. He stared around at the assembled wizards, but there was something about them that choked the words of outrage in his throat. They looked like sheep who had suddenly found a trapped wolf at exactly the same time as they'd heard about the idea of unity being strength. There was something about their eyes... What is the meaning of this out... He hesitated and concluded. This. A merry small God's Day prank, is it? His eyes swivelled to meet those of a small boy holding a long metal staff. The child was smiling the oldest smile the patrician had ever seen. Carding coughed. <coughs> My lord, he began. Out with it, man, snapped Lord Vetinari. Carding had been diffident, but the patrician's tone was just that tiny bit too peremptory. The wizard's knuckles went white. "'I am a wizard of the eighth level,' he said quietly, "'and you will not use that tone to me.' "'Well said,' said Coyne. "'Take him to the dungeons,' said Carding. "'We haven't got any dungeons,' said Spelter. "'This is a university.' Then take him to the wine cellars, snapped Carding, and while you're down there, build some dungeons. Have you the faintest inkling of what you're doing, said the patrician? I demand to know the meaning of this. You demand nothing at all, said Carding, and the meaning is that from now on the wizards will rule, as it was ordained. Now, take you, rule Ark Morpork, wizards who can barely govern themselves. Yes. Carding was aware that this wasn't the last word in repartee, and was even more aware to the fact that the dog Waffles, who had been teleported along with his master, had waddled painfully across the floor and was peering short-sightedly at the wizard's boots. Then all truly wise men would prefer the safety of a nice, deep dungeon, said the patrician, and now will you cease this foolery and replace me in my palace, and it is just possible that we will say no more about this. "'or at least you won't have the chance to.' "'Waffles gave up investigating Carding's boots "'and trotted towards Coin, shedding a few hairs on the way. "'This pantomime has gone on long enough,' said the patrician. "'Now I am getting 
Waffles growled. It was a deep primeval noise which struck a chord in the racial memory of all those present and filled them with an urgent desire to climb a tree. It suggested long grey shapes hunting in the dawn of time. It was astonishing that such a small animal could contain so much menace, and all of it was aimed at the staff in Coyne's hand. The patrician strode forward to snatch the animal, and Carding raised his hand and sent a blaze of orange and blue fire searing across the room. The patrician vanished. On the spot where he had been standing, a small yellow lizard blinked and glared with malevolent reptilian stupidity. Carding looked in astonishment at his fingers, as if for the first time. All right, he whispered hoarsely. The wizard stared down at the panting lizard, and then out at the city sparkling in the early morning light. Out there was the Council of Aldermen, the City Watch, the Guild of Thieves, the Guild of Merchants, the Priesthoods, and none of them knew what was about to hit them. End of CD 2